As we come to this particular text, uh, the title of the text is When the Stars Disappear. And you might say, well, what do you mean when the stars disappear? Well, I mean that literally and metaphorically. Or more specifically, I think in our lives, what do you do when the stars in your life disappear? The first option is to lose all hope. Let me explain for a moment. There is a text that we find in the book of Acts in which uh, Luke describes a severe storm that uh, happened when Paul was on his way to Rome. There was a boat that had 276 passengers aboard and it left Fair Havens and it set sail for Phoenix, which is a harbor in Creek. The journey started out promising, but um, not long into the journey, there was an incredible storm that blew up. And if the ship had have sunk and Luke's words had have been found or survived, these may have been likely the last words that he penned on that journey. In verse 20, it says, For many days neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope that we would be saved was disappearing. You say, well, what is Luke saying as he writes those words? Well, in ancient times, uh, sailors got their bearings by seeing the sun and the stars. So when the storm had blotted out the sun and the stars for those two weeks, and remember, they had been created by God in order to provide guidance and to judge the seasons of the world in which we live. When the storm had blotted out those lights, the condition of the crew and the passengers was very grave indeed, because they had no clue where they were going. They had no clue where they were. And were it not for God, who was above the storm and the stars, they would have surely all perished. So what does this mean when I refer to this for Abraham? When the stars disappear. Well, God's command to Abraham in only a few words was like making the stars disappear for him. Because remember God's promise to Abraham. He brought him outside and he said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. It was that promise of God that had guided Abraham. It was that promise of God that gave him his bearings in life. And now that promise clung to one particular son. And now Abraham was commanded by God to offer him as a burnt offering. We think, well, what would Abraham do? It was at this moment that I think all hope of being saved could have been lost. But we know the answer from both reading the text and from the book of Hebrews, that he maintained his faith in God even when the stars disappeared. And I think if we remember only one thing this morning, it would be this. When the stars in your life disappear, when you lose sight of your bearings in life, and all you have is a promise of God, cling to that promise. I think the main point of this text would be along this lines. When God is not clear... You are to go on walking in the darkness by faith and obedience until he brings the light. It's so helpful for us to remember that God never loses his bearings. No matter how bad things may seem, and that God would never promise what he could not do. Because God sovereignly controls all of life's storms. 
Genesis is the final record, or here in Genesis, we have the final recorded test of Abraham's faith. That's why I had Abraham or uh, Barry read all of the life of Abraham in Hebrews 11, because it reminds us again and again and again that his decisions were made through faith. And so here we have the last recorded test of Abraham's faith. And all accounts in one way or another come back to this one single promise that through a son of promise, God would multiply his descendants. And Abraham's uh, relationship with God had been one that was built on trust and his faith in him. But as we come to this text, we are given reader's privilege. We are given insight into something that Abraham didn't know. And it begins by simply saying this, God tested Abraham. That's really significant information. In fact, it is this one bit of information which I think rules out or mitigates against the charge that God was actually commanding human sacrifice. He wasn't. That doesn't mean that the command to Abraham was not clear, but it enables us to realize that obedience was fully realized not in killing Isaac, but rather in the willingness to and the preparedness to offer his son up as a sacrifice. And so it was at this command, which we understand is a test, the command of God to Abraham to take his one son, his only son, the son whom he loved, and offer him as a burnt sacrifice, at which time the stars disappeared in Abraham's life. But it was not the point at which Abraham lost his faith. In fact, the story reminds us as it's told to us again and again that he never did. That he trusted God, that he believed God's promise to him against all odds. So let's look at the text tonight or this morning. And I want to do it by looking at sort of four different uh, portions of this text. The first is Genesis 22, 1-2. And it's under the heading of the perplexity of God's ways. I think when we come to read this text, there's nothing that prepares us for the words of God to Abraham at this moment. In the last chapter, we had just had this enormous sense of relief that finally, after 25 years, the promised son was born. And a few years later, when a threat to Isaac's inheritance was presented by Ishmael, that was resolved when Ishmael was sent away. Now, here we are, as I see it, most likely many, many years later. I suspect at this point that this is between the time in which Sarah died and before Isaac married Rebekah, so he was around 38 or 40 years old, which explains to me a lot of things in the text, which I don't have time to to point you to um, uh, right now, but we have this surprising command, almost one out of the blue. We're relaxed, we're trusting in God, we're, we're believing that God has given him this son and raised him up, and all of a sudden, we have this command of God to Abraham. I think as the words are piled up, you can feel the sense of anguish and the pain that must have been sweeping over Abraham's heart. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go and sacrifice him. In the short of in the space of three short imperatives, Abraham's world was rocked. 
Now, some of you may be thinking, I've heard this sort of language before. It sounds familiar to me. And not the specific command, but the general direction of God in Abraham's life. And you would be correct. Because the start of Abraham's faith journey was very similar to the words that God now speaks to Abraham about his son. Many years earlier, when he was first called out of the land of Haran, God commanded him to leave everything that he knew, everything that he loved, and go into the land that he had promised. In chapter 12, God says to Abraham, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house. There's that build up again. And go to a land of Canaan. Leave everything you know. Leave everything you've trusted in. Leave all of your comfort and go to the land of Canaan. And Abraham obeyed and he went. And now he has 25, 30, 35 years of trusting in God when he hears a similar command. Go, take the one you love, leave the place that you're living and go to a place that I am telling you about. And so he left with all his eggs in a single basket. There's something perplexing here, isn't there? We've walked with Abraham and Sarah for so many years. We've breathed a sigh of relief that seemingly against all odds, Isaac has been born. We stumbled a little at the weaning banquet of Isaac two or three years after he was born. Things have been well. And now we have this command which seems to fly in the face of the promise of God. It really doesn't make any sense, does it? That such a command could cause and would cause irreparable damage. We ask ourselves, how is it that God would contradict his word, or so it would seem? Now, I realize that none of us here are in the same position of Abraham. We are not head of the covenant people of God, any more than we are in the position of Adam, and he was the representative head of humankind. But are there not times in all of our lives when God's ways seem to contradict the assurances that he has given us in his word? Are there not times when the stars in our lives seem to disappear? Those things that give us bearing, those things that ground us, those things that guide and direct our lives, those promises that God has given us seem to disappear? I think sometimes we might think of Isaiah's words when we hit those situations. Or as we look back on them, maybe God will remind us, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let me quote one of the commentators that I read this week, Davis. Hail Ralph Davis, he says, Don't you face times when God's ways do not seem to match up with his own declared character? When given the mess he is taking you through, he doesn't seem to be your refuge and your strength, a well-proved help in troubles. He says, God is not always clear. I think there are times, if you've walked with God for any length of times, when all of your theology, all of our Bible reading, all of the sermons you may have read, all of the wisdom that we have received from others, when we cannot make heads nor tails, out of what God seems to be leading us into. There will be times in our lives when everything that we think we know about God 
is up for grabs. When God seems to be so strange that he doesn't seem to be himself. But I think this first part of Genesis 22, these first two verses, helps cushion us against such times. For it tells us that there are very likely going to be times in our life when we will have problems with God's ways. And I think it's especially during these times that maybe the words of the writer in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 3, need to come to the forefront of our thinking. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Don't consider yourself to be wise. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will be healing to your body and strength to your bones. So there are times when we will be perplexed by God's ways in our life. The second thing that we see as we look at verses 3 to 8 here is the pathway of God's servant, as it's been described by one commentator. I think two words summarize um, verses 3 to 8. It is steeled obedience. Some of you might prefer the word simple obedience. For on the, other, on the one hand, Abel's, Abraham's response seems that he simply obeys. But I prefer the word steeled obedience. Because I don't think there was anything easy at all in Abraham's obedience to this command. For one thing, you read those verses and they're dominated by silence. Particularly the first few verses where he is preparing to go on his way and up to the third day. That doesn't mean that nothing was said before then. But I suspect that very little was said. And we're familiar also with the words early in the morning. This is the third time now we see this in Abraham's life. It seems to maybe point to the fact that when you have something difficult to do, you better get up early in the morning and set your mind to it. Because as the day wears on, you might divert your path and, and say, well, I'll deal with it the next day. There is something steeled about his obedience. Early in the morning, he got up. I find it fascinating, too, in this text. There's no commentary about how Abraham felt. And I have really resisted the temptation to read between the lines. We can all do that, and I would encourage you to do that. But there is no reference at all to how Abraham felt here. All that the Scripture tells us is what Abraham did. Simply says, early in the morning he got up, saddled his donkey, took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering, and he set out to go to the place God had told him about. That is steeled obedience. That is determined obedience. That is obedience that comes from a mindset that says, okay, God, here we go. I will trust you and obey you. You think, well, where does the conviction for such obedience come from? How does it arise in somebody's heart? How does the faith of Abraham accounted for? Well, I think the bottom line is it comes from faith in God. I wonder if this had have happened years and years earlier, if Abraham's response would have been the same. 
And I think God knows our journeys and God only tests us according to what we were able. He doesn't challenge us beyond our abilities, but he knows what we can handle. But I think this kind of obedience comes from a a steadied, long-term relationship with God. It comes from the experience of previous obedience. I don't think it's coincidental that the language of the command and the separation of chapter 12 are the same here. Again, I remind you, there God told Abraham, go out, and he went. Here, Abraham is told by God, go out to a, a mountain I will show you. In chapter 12, Abraham left everything he loved and knew, and God sustained him for many, many years. Here again, God is sending Abraham away, alone from those he knows, to go to Mount Moriah. I don't think God's timing and test was random. Twice, Abraham makes statements which I think reveal something of his conviction in God. First, in Verse 5, he makes a statement to the two men after the third day when God kind of taps him on the shoulder and says, Abraham, we're here. It's right over there. And so Abraham turns to his two young men. He says, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and we'll come back to you. It would seem that behind this conviction is a confidence that God could do the impossible. Just as he had done the impossible in his life in the birth of Isaac, so God could do the impossible now in this seeming command to offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. The second time we hear his conviction is the comments that he makes to his son, Isaac. When Isaac turns to his father and says, Dad, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the burnt offering, my son. Derek Kidner writes, it might might almost be called his lifelong motto. Many have lived by it since. His complete certainty of God together with his complete openness to the details. God will provide. There's certainty. God will provide. I don't know how, but I know he will. Complete certainty in God's ways, but a willing to trust the circumstances which will bring it about. God's method was his own affair, writes Kidner. And it would take them both by surprise. I believe that Abraham fully understood what he was saying to his son. It wasn't just a shot in the dark. Even though his words hung on faith and faith only that God would provide. Again, as Davis writes, though God is baffling, he is nevertheless trustworthy. Though he is mysterious, he is righteous. This is the pathway of God's servants, the pathway of obedience. And it's the one which many of us have been called to walk and which some of you may be called to walk this week. I thought of this in particular of Psalm 23, verse 4. The Lord is my shepherd. 
Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So there is perplexity in the ways of God in our lives. There's a clearer pathway, though, for us in those ways, and that is to put our faith and trust solely in God and to obey him. And then there's the provision of God's perspective. It seems when you come to verse 9, everything seems to slow down. If we have these details in picture behind us on a large screen, I think that if I was directing a movie of this, I would then deliberately slow down what now is said about Abraham. The details of how this unfolds. Seven verbs, writes one individual, detail every moment. It's like the story is being dragged out as long as possible so that we don't have to come to the end or so that the end might be inevitably delayed. But as you read these words, these seven verbs, as, as, as Abraham lays everything out and prepares everything for it, I think it allows us also to maybe dive a little bit more deeply into the anguish of Abraham's heart. And one wonders if the slowness of the pace is intentional to grab heaven's gaze. It seems to do the trick because the angel of the Lord, just as Abraham is about to take the son of his life, the Abraham, or the angel of the Lord looks down from heaven and commands Abraham to stop and commends him for his obedience. It had been complete. He had been willing to offer his son as a burnt offering. And so we see here God's provision. He provided a substitute for Isaac. I don't really want to go too much farther than that from this text. It simply say that God provided a substitute for Isaac. It was Abraham's son, his seed, who needed a substitute. This ram was given up so that Isaac might live, and certainly then by, by, by extension, the people of Israel might live. And once again, God had secured his promise to Abraham. But there's a few more things that I think are helpful for us to notice about God's provision and God's perspective. Contrary to what we might say and what we might sing, Jehovah Jireh is not a name for God. It is the name of a place. Moses is very clear that the place is not named the mountain of Abraham's obedience. The place was called God provides. And incidentally, it was a place where the plague that was sent upon Israel was stopped and it would be the place where Jerusalem was built. But again, it was not a, a name of God that's given here, but rather a place that is named after God and what he had done. Secondly, the phrase in Genesis chapter 22, 14 could also be, and maybe more probably could be, Yahweh sees rather than Yahweh provides, or the Lord sees rather than the Lord provides. One commentator again, Derek Kidner, writes, Jehovah Jireh is the expression Abraham had used in verse 8. 
provide. It's a secondary meaning of a simple verb to see. In other words, to see to it, that God would see to it that there would be a provision for Abraham's need in this particular situation. Or in the mount, it will become clear. In the, in the place of final obedience, it will become clear what God is up to. In other words, what the text is saying is something like God will see to it. He will ensure his promise is true. The King James trans, uh, Version translates as such. It says, And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. What shall be seen? The, the, the Lord's perfect perspective, the Lord's provision. In the mount it will become clear, or in the mountain of Yahweh it will be seen. In other words, the emphasis is not so much on God's provision, but on God's seeing what is needed. And so God did for Abraham what he often does for us and so often does for us. He provides for us through what he sees or he makes things clear to us. It's like the perspective, I, I think, of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, where we are warned about how we go into the presence of God. We're not to go in flippantly. We're not to go in with many, many words. Rather, we're to go in thoughtfully and worshipfully because God is in heaven and we are on earth. We need to be careful not to, to tell God what to do, not to show God what to do. We are rather to go into God's presence and hear what God might have to say to us. It's the perspective that we also get in, 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 in Psalm chapter 73 when Asaph almost loses his, his footing because he is concerned about the wicked. And he's, he's envious of the wicked because the wicked always seem to prosper. They never seem to stumble. Everything seems to go their way. But it was not until he entered into worship that he found his bearings again. And he writes, When I tried to understand all of this, it seemed hopeless until I entered into God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. As we get to the end of obedience, we see God's clarity. When the stars disappear for you, wait for God's provision in his perspective. Know that he will see to it that you will find your way. And finally, there's just the implications of God's promise. It's kind of fascinating when you read verses 15 on there. There we find in verse 15, it says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. There must have been at least a, a little bit of delay between getting all things ready and, and Isaac was saved and the ram was sacrificed. And then it says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. And what we find here now is the fullest expression of the promise that God had ever made to Abraham. He, he pulls all the strands together. And it's bracketed by Abraham's obedience. It says, because you have not withheld your son, and then at the very end of it, it says, because you have obeyed my voice. Well, what's the result of his obedience? He says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. 
there's a few things that caught my attention. The first is simply that in your offspring, or your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies. We are the offspring of Abraham. Could this be a promise of survival? Could, be, could this be a, a way of telling us that, that like, like, like Abraham who went after the five kings who stole all of the goods of Sodom and took Lot with him, that God will be with us against the forces that rise up against us? As I was thinking about this phrase, that, that I am included in that, your offspring, I'm one of Abraham's offspring, your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies. I was reading Esther chapter 8 this morning. And Esther chapter 8 describes this incredible turn of events in which Haman, the enemy of the Jews, it said again and again and again, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, has the tables turned on him. And they're turned on him personally such that the king hangs him on the, on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king gives Esther all of Haman's estate. And then the tables are turned against the edict that Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had set in place that a specific day all the Jews could be slaughtered. And through the king, Esther and Mordecai write an edict that allows the Jews to defend themselves. And I thought of this phrase, your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies. It's not always so obvious in our lives. Sometimes it will appear that our enemies, in fact, seem to prevail. But again and again, we can see time after time how the designs and the malicious intents of the enemies of God's people are turned into good for God's people. And there is one day coming, a great day coming, when all the enemies of God will be subdued through one of Abraham's offspring. For God has said to his son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The second thing that the angel says to Abraham, which I believe applies to us, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. I don't know if we think these things through a lot in our lives. I don't know if we think through the implications of the promise to Abraham and how they flow down through us and out of us. But I think there's a significant statement being said here about our presence in the world in which we live. Because we are Abraham's offspring, remember. And the earth will be blessed by us being in this world. And so think about your presence in the Oceanside community in your home, in your neighborhood, in the place where you work. It's a reminder that God is for us. It's a reminder that, that, that God chooses to bless those that we work for, to bless the communities in which we live, to have a salt and a preservative influence that flows from our lives to the lives of those who are even the enemies of God. It's a warning, I think, also to those who are against the people of God. We are the children of God. We are the servants of, in the kingdom of God most high. 
we are protected by the hand of God. And as I said a few weeks earlier, when somebody goes after one of God's children, they go after God. And that is never a wise move. It reminds us that we may be outnumbered, but never undone. We may live in hostile settings, but there is still a blessing of God that flows through us to those who are hostile even to us. And so I would say you are a daughter of God. Hold your head up high. You are a son of God. Hold your head up high. And finally, these last verses, these verses about Nahor, about Nahor and Milcah, they might seem as though they're randomly placed. I think it is okay to conclude, and maybe rightly so, that these verses at the very end of chapter 22 are preparing us for the provision of a wife for Isaac because it tells us about the family line and the lineage of Rebekah. I think they also are a way of bookending the last section of Abraham's life because a similar statement is made about Abraham at the, in chapter 25. But I think these verses also do something else. They provide this incredible contrast between Abraham and Nahor. It says, after these things, somebody told Abraham. After what things? Well, after all these uh, events of, of, of Isaac and um, God's provision of, of a sacrifice, and as they were walking along, after these things, somebody, somebody came along to neighbor, in, in Abraham. They must have come from, from Nahor, obviously. And they tell Abraham about his family. And he says, Nahor has 12 sons. But Abraham only has two. Nahor has eight sons by his wife, Milcah. Abraham only has one son by his wife, Sarah. In contrast with the fertility of Nahor, Abraham has a single son of a promise. It's like the odds seem to be stacked against Abraham and God. On Nahor's side is this considerable fertility and virility. There is health. There is security in great numbers. And we might say that Nahor has got it made. He's secure in the world. But for Abraham, everything is resting on a single boy. The present and the future of God's people are resting on the life of that one son who's not even married yet. It seems once again the promise of God is hanging by a thread. It's fragile, it's flimsy in comparison to the worldly reality of Nahor. And I thought about that. Even in the times that we're living right now, that God's people and God's church can really feel like we're up against overwhelming odds. When's the last time we met as a church? Doesn't it feel like, like the, the weight of the world, not necessarily intentionally, but at least unintentionally, is bearing against us and we're, we're hanging by a thread? There's fragility, there's a flimsiness about our, 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 unite, our uniting together in our body of Christ. I think one of the things that, that is disturbing me is that 
Because we don't meet together, we are getting more set in our ways. And we're not having the effect of iron sharpening iron and rubbing off on one another and and taking the sharp edges off one another. And so there's more disunity over politics. There's more disunity about the vaccine. There's more disunity about the virus. And it seems like everything is bearing against us. I feel it. The success and the power of the world seem to be overwhelming the odds of the church to survive. Beloved ones, we are children of the promise. We are God's children. We are children of the Most High. We are children that have a hope and a future. And we are being protected and purified as the bride of God for Christ, or the the bride of Christ by God our Father. And we are more than the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. I think we need to remember that though we might be scattered and it might, we might feel like we are un, outnumbered. Uh, I was reading this again in Revelation. After this, John says, I looked and behold, a great number that nobody could number from every nation, from all the tribes and the people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and, and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And I thought, we are scattered. But one day we will be gathered. And the provision of God and the hand of God and the promise of God will then be seen in all its multitude and its vastness and its power. God tested Abraham. He tested him severely. And Abraham passed the test. I wondered about the joy in heaven. I think they would have known what's going on. They would have watched, trembling as they heard the command of God go out to Abraham. Trembling as God, Abraham actually obeyed God, wondering, God, what are you doing? And then the angel of the Lord says to Abraham, you have not held back your son, your only son from me. And I think, might this have been on Paul's mind when he penned those words in Romans 8.32? He who did not hold back his very own son, but handed him over for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Loved ones, when the stars disappear in your world, when the promise of God given to you appears to be in jeopardy, when the source of your bearings in life appear to be hidden, Put your trust wholly in God who made the stars, who granted the promise, and who guarantees the outcome. Remember, God never loses his bearings no matter how bad things may seem. And God will never promise what he cannot do or will not do. 
God will ultimately see his people through anything that he commands them to walk through. We have his words. When those storms finally begin to subside in our life, and they will, not always in this life, but certainly in the next life. And when the skies begin to clear, we will look up once more and we will see the stars and the sun and the moon. And we will realize how our loving Heavenly Father has been with us all the way. May we be children of faith as Abraham our father was. Father, we come before you today. We do wrestle with a text like this. But I think it helps us deal with those times in our lives when we have not a clue what you're up to. In fact, we might question what you're up to. But this text shows us that you know exactly what you're up to. I pray we would be characterized as Abraham was by steeled obedience. That we will be men and women, boys and girls of faith. That we will trust that there will be a time when we will realize that you see all things and you will provide what we need. And that, Father, that maybe we might feel like we're outnumbered from an earthly perspective. But from your perspective, we are a vast, vast multitude. Keep your hand upon us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.